0: The first passage today is from Matthew 1, verse 1 to 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Genesis chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hera. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers, so Tamar went to live in her father's household." After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shuad, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Aneim, which is on the road to Timnah, For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at a name? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son Shalah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah.
1: Whilst Advent doesn't technically start until next weekend, uh, next Sunday Christian churches around the world start marking Advent as a preparation before the season of Christmas. Uh, We wanted to spend uh, some of our Sundays, the next three, looking at this genealogy in Matthew, and we'll get on to that. But I wonder whether, um, from a society and culture perspective, here in Manchester, Christmas markets are open. They open before Remembrance Sunday. We did Remembrance Sunday, and then, boom, Christmas just descends, doesn't it? And, I mean, uh, b and were up there in October with stuff like Halloween and Christmas all mixed in together. But um, you've probably no doubt already started to watch the Christmas ads that are out as well. Uh, any hands up on the favourite for John Lewis, who's, who's had a, a, a small tear I have, it choked me, I thought it was wonderful. But there's clearly two types of Christmas adverts, aren't there? There's the ones that are thought-provoking, heartwarming, the inspiring ones like the John Lewis one which caught people's attention again, 2.9 million views on YouTube. And it's very self-effacing, isn't it? It wants to just raise an issue that's very close and one that we need to uh, be not just aware of but supportive of, of the childcare system. But then the other adverts, where they're going, particularly coming out of COVID, it's like, how much can you eat? What is on the table? Let's just go bang. Christmas has just thrown up everywhere. And I found this cheesy uh, Christmas shot coming up of the Christmas dinner and all these ads going around my head. As I was reading Genesis 38, you know, this is what they teach you not to do at Bible college. Don't bring stuff from culture outside, let the text talk. I just couldn't th- stop thinking about Christmas dinners. And what would it look like if Judah and the family were around the Christmas table? And you've got the uncles there, you've got Perez and uh, Zera sort of trying to nick some wine or whatever, and mum's making sure that they're eating some vegetables as well. And then one of the uncles just goes, oh, Perez and Zera, do you know that your your granddad, Judah, is your dad? (laughs) Mum, what's going on? You know, could you see the Christmas carnage there around the table? This would be far more chaotic than a Christmas soap special. But how do we make sense of this passage of Scripture in front of us? Genesis 38. What good is there here for us? If we're looking for strong moral examples, then we're going to be very disappointed. But if we're looking for the redeeming love of God, who takes broken lives and desperate situations and makes them glorious, then we're in for a real treat. I hope over the next three Sundays, as we look at some of these women uh, mentioned here in Matthew 1, we will see that deeper. You see, God's grace shines brightest where it is least expected, and we catch a glimpse of it here in Matthew chapter 1 in that family tree. You see, just to highlight one or two things before we get into Genesis 38. Um, genealogies in Matthew's time, in the ancient times, on the whole, did not contain women's names. You can see that from Luke's genealogy. To have women included in these genealogies was quite a surprise, unexpected. But Matthew makes a deliberate point of including four unexpected women. Tamar? Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all of them foreigners, not from Israel. Two were Canaanites, one was a Moabite, and one was a Hittite. All of them had questionable questionable reputations. Rahab was a prostitute who helped Joshua and the Israelites. Bathsheba was an adulteress. Ruth was from Moab, so her entire ethnic origin was the result of incest between Lot and his youngest daughters. And as we'll see, Tamar's story is, is sordid. It would fit in with the tabloid press. And yet these women experiencing broken lives have a holy calling. These women have a holy calling. You see, God works wonderfully through them so that they, they are blessed and ultimately As we see where that family line goes, through Jesus Christ, birth, life, death, and resurrection, we are ultimately blessed by them. So as we prepare to celebrate Christmas and we come into this season of preparation, Advent, we'll see how these women teach us, how they bless us. And the first thing we've got to do as we grapple with this passage is we'll look at some of the characters, and, and let's focus in on Judah. Now, we've finished a series looking at Jacob's life, and uh, we we get to this story. Now, in the context of what's going on here in Genesis, we shouldn't be surprised to see that this story about Judah is wedged in uh, in between the more well-known story about Joseph. So if you've got your Bibles open, this is where it's easier when you've got a paper one because you can just flick back and you'll see the chapter before, 37, introduces us to Joseph with his 11 other brothers who were the brothers we heard about from Leah and Rachel. Joseph was Leah's favourite, firstborn, and became Jacob's favourite. And so we hear about Joseph... And then we hear about Judah, then it goes back to Joseph, but the whole point is, um, 37 verse 2, this is an account of Jacob's family line. So actually, it's not just trying to single in on one brother, but we will, through the story, be tracing who's going where out of those 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, has come to a bit of a sticky patch with his brothers. His 11 brothers plotted to kill him. They then sold him into slavery, and they've deceived their father, Jacob, into believing he was dead. That's chapter 37. Now, the listener and reader who's attentive will already know they'd be alert to the fact that Judah is up to no good. So if you just flick back to chapter 37, and it's there in verse 26... It's interesting that judah is quite entrepreneurial he's the one who comes up with the plan to make some money out of joseph what's a brother worth well we'll see how much can we sell him for <laughs> don't kill him let's flog him off to the midianites what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood come let's sell him to the ishmaelites who are also the midianites and not lay hands on him and so There we go. That's the plot. The brothers agree. Reuben, the um, eldest, firstborn, he was trying to save Joseph, but that plan falls to parts, and obviously in some way he throws his hat in with um, the others, and Joseph is sold. Judah therefore leaves his dad heartbroken. This is where we get to it, the beginning of chapter 38. He leaves his heartbroken dad and the family, and we're told he went down to Adullam, near Bethlehem, in Cana. Now, He then goes there. He makes a a good mate, hearer and he gets married to a Canaanite woman. Now, this little note about the geography is quite important because it mirrors what's going on with Joseph. So the, the family are in the promised land, but then Judah splits away, goes down into Canaanite territory and where's Joseph going off? Well, he's going off down to Egypt. And you see this... Brothers parallel, going down. Going down somewhere that feels a bit foreign. Feels a bit, ooh, is, is this where God's going to be at work? Uh, are, they, are they going the right way? And it's a deliberate thing. It's this geographic descent from Hebron's heights to Canaan's lowlands, as well as the decision to marry someone from another nation does, that doesn't know the Lord... Well, those movements actually mirror, they're an alert to us as readers and listeners, mirroring um, Judah's spiritual rebellion. See, Judah lives in the promised land, but rather than being distinctive in his obedience to the Lord, he starts to conform to the world around. He starts to just blend in. Just go with the flow and the people around. Abraham and Jacob, they, as we travel through their stories, become more aware of the need to be distinctive, of their obedience to the Lord being worked out by not conforming to the nations and tribes around them. But Judah, well, he just dives in. And his sin is seen quite clearly here in his passivity. So let's have a think about that. His sons are up to no good. We find that out in the opening um, three verses. There are only three things we know about Ur. He was the eldest son. He married Tamar. And his sinfulness was so serious that the Lord took his life. Short and snappy bio, isn't it? Imagine putting that on your Facebook. Onan is no better. He's self-centered. He's not caring in a specific issue, which is to fulfill the ancient Near Eastern Leverite law to marry his brother's wife so that she wasn't left a widow, but instead his duty was to make sure she had children which would continue the family line and receive the inheritance. Now I know to us reading it, we're going, no, oh, this sounds really strange and weird. What is going on? But this was a recognized social practice that was actually about welfare, was about care, was about making sure that a widow was looked after and that the brother's name continued, his progeny carried on. His name didn't just fade away and die out. And we come across the same arrangement in the book of Ruth, except Boaz is the honorable one. He's generous. He marries Ruth. He produces a family who are also in Judah's line. You can start to see these recurring themes. And it's reasonable to assume that Onan wants to get his hands on the inheritance and to be the head of Judah's clan when Judah dies. Because we're told that in the passage, that he knows this child wouldn't be his. It wouldn't have his name. And so whenever Onan has sex with Tamar, he ensures she won't become pregnant in verse 9. Onan's wickedness, therefore, is clear. He breaks an established family law, one that is actually continued in Moses' law given by God to protect the welfare and security of widows. And worse still, he's then using Tamar for his own sexual satisfaction, The Lord sees all of this. He knows Onan sinned against him and against Tamar and against the family. And his death is judgment in verse 10. So Tamar is twice widowed and childless. Now, when I was chatting to the children's groups and Katie about what we're going to look at, she went, I don't think we'll do that chapter, Pete. (laughs) It's it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It should make us feel uncomfortable. It should also sort of... Make us think, okay, how much of the the social um, welfare system do I know? The context, that's important. But here we can see wickedness. Men just acting as they want. Using women for their own ends. And God is displeased. But where's this passivity? Look at Judah. He's silent about his two older sons. His silence speaks volumes. He doesn't seem upset by their deaths. He doesn't seem bothered by their sinfulness. In sharp contrast to Jacob's overwhelming grief, when Judah Judah and the sons tell him that you know their deceit that uh, Joseph has been killed, and and he said, I'm never going to be consoled. I'm just going to mourn until I die. It like Jacob's like out here. Judah's like, huh? We we get nothing. He comes across as cold and uncaring. In fact, he now has no intention of caring for Tamar either. Did you see that in the text? It was his legal duty as her father-in-law to do this. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, that's number three, grows up. Sounds good so far, but go and have a few more years with your folks and I'll give you a call when Shella's ready. However, we're told that Judah's real intentions are quite obvious. Verse 11b, for he thought he may die just like his brothers. That's an interesting detail put in there, isn't it? Because can you see what's going on? Judah is so self-absorbed, he shifts the blame. It's got to be this woman tamar she's either damaged goods or she's cursed or something it's all on her rather than own up to his own faults to his own mess to his decision to compromise by going to Canaan, his lack of godly discipleship of his sons he'd rather blame tamar that's easier it's on her his sin is seen in his passivity there's no thought given to his daughter-in-law. She is abused by men. She might have felt rejected by God too. She might have been thinking, is this really my fault? She bears grief and shame of not carrying on the family line. Jerem Barr is an English Bible professor and author who uh, works here in, in the UK and then moved over to a seminary in the States. He explains this, this reaction particularly this blame-shifting between men and women, but in this incident, uh, men blaming women for wrongs. He, he says very clearly from his mission experiences as well, many cultures still continue this, especially where a woman survives her husband. She's regarded as the reason for the husband's dying before her, particularly if he dies while he's in his young or in his prime. Um, he mentions in particular, um, not, not to sort of highlight uh, the nation in one sense as any worse than others, but the practice in India of Suti where burning a wife on her dead husband's funeral pyre was a common practice centuries ago. But it was made illegal in the early decades of the 1800s, largely as a result of William Carey, the missionary, and William Wilberforce's work. This carrying the shame, this blaming the other, of finding honor in that way, has no place biblically. But we don't have to look at other cultures to see how we denigrate and shame women, do we? The porn and sex industry, which has been tolerated and now normalized in the UK, especially in the last 60 years, is, just outright, a vile outworking of self-absorbed, perverted human hearts seeking their own pleasure. I'm not going to nuance it. It is. We have justified it as a nation in lots of ways, and it's got to stop. We, we don't think it's, it's a problem. It's horrific, it displeases the Lord, it ruins human beings, and fundamentally as men it treats women as a thing. And Judah's sin is driven by his sexual passion, there is a passion dimension here and it has a sexual perspective, because did you notice a key part of Tamar's plan rests on one thing it rests on the fact that she he knows he will use the services of a shrine prostitute in other words he was a man who when he wanted sex he got it he was ruled by his appetite even the way judas speaks to disguise tamar in verse 16 is very direct in the hebrew come let me come into you boom that's Whoa, okay. You see in the bigger story, Judah is directly contrasted with Joseph. So what comes next? Chapter 39. And around the same time, we're dealing with in chapter 38. It's a period of about 20 years. And and everything slows down in the one year that Tamar gets pregnant. And what comes next? But we're looking at a 20-year period. And at the same time, Joseph is in Egypt. And in Chapter 39, this is what's going on to Joseph, and this is what's going on to Judah, and what's Joseph doing? The parallel is stark, isn't it? He's contrasted here as maintaining his sexual integrity as a slave who does not compromise, even when he is unjustly punished. And the key difference is that Joseph is beginning to get his eyes fixed on the Lord, Instead of agreeing to an affair with Potiphar's wife, Joseph declares, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You see, we can't see that treating people a different way, putting them down, denigrating them, we can't see that as wrong unless truly we have God's sight on this. We submit ourselves to what God says is right and wrong. Because we will creatively justify anything as acceptable. Judah, both in his passivity and his passion, is guilty of sin in the Lord's sight. And at this point, it is, going in hard, it is a warning to us all. As believers to again re-examine our hearts as those who are maybe weighing up the faith looking in and going what is going on what what are you saying about the biggest problem of the human heart what is the issue here the issue is obedience and disobedience to what god says it is saying my life is my way it is a warning to us where we are blind about our own sin john The Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these wonderful words in chapter 3 of his Gospel. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world through Jesus. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will expose. Chapter 3, verses 19 to 20. That, for me, is one of the most profound and spot-on diagnoses of the human condition you will read in a couple of sentences. We don't want to be exposed. We know we're doing wrong, so you just stay in the dark. God sees us as we truly are. That's the warning of chapter 38. It's also the good news of chapter 38. He really sees us as we truly are, and he knows that we must be dragged out into his light in order for us to be forgiven and be restored. You know, I'm getting dental work done on my teeth at the moment. Not in a, it's not a vain thing. I've got some problems with nasty pus stuff. I won't go into the details. You can ask me about that over coffee. Um, but it's amazing. Like all the equipment in, in the dentist hospital in Manchester do a fantastic work. But one of the things that's really powerful is they've got this massive microscope thing and this bright light. And I have to wear these sunglasses that they put on. Because they need the light to see what's really going on. See all the mess and let's get right in there and drill things and stuff. To get to the root of the problem. God needs to drag us into the light. It's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for Judah. It's a wake-up call he needed. It's a wake-up call we need today. Living in the darkness will end in judgment it will end in actually seeing the one who sees everything, but having no hope, no shield, no place to run, no place to hide, just exposed. But this is the thing. Sin is exposed so that grace can be given. Sin is exposed so that grace can be given. Preachers speak about the problem, not to just rub it in, but to say there's a solution. And that's where... We'll see with Tamar. Let's look at her. Tamar the righteous. We see here the cost of injustice. We see her struggle. So let's turn to Tamar. Her situation is bleak, isn't it? She's probably in her late teens in verse 11 when Judah gives her her marching orders. But... She is not prepared to be a passive victim. She has a plan. She knows her responsibility is to continue the family line. So she produces heirs so that they will have an inheritance in God's promised land. She knows that is part of her calling as now someone married into Jacob's family. And in this way, she takes the Lord's promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, she takes them more seriously and more faithfully than her Israelite father-in-law. Can you see how amazing is this? The work of God in her life. And in verse 14, we see her plan. And these action words again, boom, boom, boom. You get this sort of sense of movement. She took off. She covered herself. She sat down. The plan's afoot. And these these action words heighten the tension. She's not sitting around. She's not waiting for a phone call that's never going to come. And off with the widow's covering. And probably puts on something a little bit more seductive to signal that she was available as a shrine prostitute to Ashtoreth, the goddess of that area. But notice the veil. Why does she have that? Well, she needs a disguise. And if you've been paying attention during our Jacob series, you go, ah, wait a sec, disguises. This rings bells. The veil. Jacob's disguise with Isaac goat hair. Leah being veiled as Jacob unwittingly takes her as his wife. And after their night of their first married night together, he wakes up and sees it's Leah, not Rachel, the veil. And even Joseph's blood-splattered cloak given to Jacob, making him believe Joseph was killed. There's deceit there again, another item of clothing, another veiling. And as Tim Keller helpfully explains, Tamar was going after justice. This was at the heart of her plan. Now, the way she did it was off the scale, definitely. Yes, it was immoral. Yes, it it was incestuous. And these relations were later outlawed in the sinai law however she was forced into this dark alley by judah tamar brilliantly uses as well the sex double standard doesn't she still exists today the sex double standard it's basically this one rule for women one rule for men and the rules are given by the men usually it's the crux of her plan to get what she is entitled to, to expose Judah. Judah had sex whenever he wanted and probably had a reputation for it. She could count on the fact that Judah would not abstain. He wouldn't be self-controlled. If he wants sex, he goes and gets it. But he also insists that she stays childless and unmarried. What? So she makes sure she's in the right place at the right time. And there's a bit of humor here as well as Tamar slows things down in their conversation to make sure she's going to get paid. There's no she's, she's the no-nonsense negotiator. She secures three pieces of undeniable evidence in this pledge. The seal with the cord, which a wealthy head of family would wear around their neck, and the, the seal would be a, a clay cylinder, Uh, with a stone carved on it, which had some inscription or a signature mark, something unique, which was that person's e-signature. It was their stamp. It's a bit like our facial recognition or the fingerprint. And the staff would be unique as well, inscribed to be clearly identified as Judas. Basically, no one would lose both their seal, their cord, their staff on the roadside. And the Bible is very concerned with the welfare of the widow. We need to remember that in this plan as well. And David, if you could flick the slide on, we've got just some verses here. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but frustrates the way of the wicked. The prophet Isaiah calls out, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And in the town of Nain, Jesus sees a widow at the funeral of her son in Luke 7. And we read there, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier. They, they were carrying the dead son on. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to her. Jesus' action, therefore, shows God's heart of compassion for the widow and he meets her real need. And here's grace. God sees Tamar's struggle and meets her need, her desire for justice. She becomes pregnant and in due course gives birth to twins. But the pregnancy is also used by God to humble and convict Judah, to change him, to convict him of his sin, against God, against Tamar. It's made public. All that reputation sort of defending that judah was worried about like send a goat oh she's not there just forget about it don't want people laughing at us no mate that is not on the table that's going to come out because when god deals with sin he deals with the effects of sin as well and you can't have restoration without truth and restoration comes at a cost And we see the full glare of his ugly hypocrisy in verse 24 when he hears Tamar is pregnant. It's just two words in the Hebrew, take and burn, take, burn. I mean, I hope it shocked you as it was being read. It's blunt. It's brutal, isn't it? And you cannot miss how disproportionate his judgment is again his corrupt heart needs tamar to be guilty in order to shield his sin he's shifting blame and endorsing murder i mean it's just a spiral going darker isn't it but tamar has a vital message a life-changing wake-up call it's there in in yeah we just see it as she's being brought out verse 25 See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And that word for recognize is literally identify. And it's used again in chapter 37, verse 32. And in verse 33, when Jacob has to examine and recognize Joseph's robe. It's here's the evidence. Look at it, identify Tamar's demanding Judah to look deeply, not just at the pledge, not just at the evidence in front of you, but yourself. Look at yourself. Identify your part in this. Recognize what you've done. You are guilty. See your sinful delusion for what it is. See, Judah, just like us, needs a spiritual awakening. His family have experienced so much of the Lord. And ignored so much. His name means to praise. He, he was the son that Leah said, right, I'm going to call you Judah. And I'm praising the Lord for you. He was a miracle. He was a gift of God. But through Tamar, God drags Judah into the light to see how wicked he truly is. There's no more hiding. He says it just straightforwardly. She's more righteous than I. What does that mean? In what way is Tamar righteous? You've got to ask that question here. Because after all, she has pretended to be a prostitute. She's had sex with her father-in-law. It's gone down a dark, blind alley. Well, Tamar's righteousness is in her commitment to honor the obligations to God that she has. It's about the promises before the Lord to her husband. She will not give up on that promise. She didn't go looking for a Canaanite guy to settle down with. She wants to do the right thing. And the writer, Moses, does does not mention whether Tamar's action was a good example or an honest deed. It doesn't line up with biblical standards. But Judah's sin is more than hers. He is responsible for the position he has brought Tamar into and the deceit she took. It's as Jesus said, woe to those who make these little ones stumble. He is culpable. Yes, she is. She needs forgiveness. But her righteousness is seen in who she's trusting in. The Lord God taking his promise, his word seriously. And interestingly, in the story where others die for their sin and wickedness, God doesn't kill Tamar. In fact, he honors her with two sons, twins, both Judah and Tamar. Indeed, the whole family need God's astounding grace. And that's where we're going to land and finish. Because this glorious story shows us a savior whose grace breaks through our disgrace. A savior who breaks through our disgrace. Little did Perez know as he broke out of Tamar's womb, which his name means break through or break out, that many generations and kings later, the king of kings, the savior, would break out into this world in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. A servant king whose love would break through our sin. Uh, a light that would break out in the darkness of this world, whose resurrection would break through death to life. And to everyone who recognizes their need of salvation through him, there is another breakout promised to each one of us. It's his power in our lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way. We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're the jars of clay. Why? Why? To show this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Jesus' power in us, breaking out, breaking through, turning sin to forgiveness, turning shame into blessing, taking it away. And amazingly, this is a turning point for Judah. You might not believe it, but his heart is changed. And when he finally comes face to face with Joseph in Egypt, he pledges himself to be the slave in Benjamin's place, Joseph's younger uh, brother. Judah says, I'll step in. Uh, Take me. You don't have Benjamin. Take me, I'll be your slave. By saying, how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. You read that in Genesis 44. Judah begging Joseph, have mercy. Take me, I can't bring it on my dad. You see, he's willing to be the substitute slave to protect Benjamin, to shield Jacob from more distress. That passive, uncaring, selfish brother has been changed by God's grace, and it melts Joseph's heart too. Isn't it interesting in the line of Judah the substitute saving king will come. Tamar's story is so challenging, and we've only just started to scratch the surface. It causes us to recognize the sin in our lives and turn from it. And it calls us to help each other, drag each other into God's light as church family. It doesn't mean you go around and shout. I'm not advocating you literally force people into a room with bright lights and shine it in their face, although that might wake them up and they might take you seriously. But pastorally, there are better ways of doing things. But helping each other see our sin, confessing, restoring, forgiving, loving, moving together in God's light. This is a story that should provoke us about justice issues. I was just reading this week in, our, in the Tear Fun Prayer Diary, we're praying for gender uh, about the issue of gender-based violence in West Africa, where it's estimated 200 million women and girls aged 15 to 49 live with the consequences of female genital mutilation or cutting. You can look that up on the Tear Fun website, the, the prayer um, requests there and the work they're doing with local churches to support women in their communities. Why is no one talking about that loudly? we need to advocate we need to petition certainly in prayer we can't forget the abuses of the persecuted christians that they're what they're facing around the world at this moment world cups kicking off today qatar many expatriate expatriate community churches are still closed off the back of covid The government shut them down in COVID and they've still shut them down so they can't meet. Hello? Why is no one making a noise about that? This expatriate community are also the ones who are working on the building sites and being abused that way. And yet they're our brothers and sisters and they can't worship together. They could still be imprisoned And worse, for sharing their faith with Qatari's. But above all, this account shows us our our deep weaknesses. But even with those deep weaknesses, God's people can see his deeper greatness of his loving kindness. We discover here that the people God loves and honors don't come to him perfect and pure. We're broken people. We hurt and break others. We're weak-willed. We disobey his commands when it suits us. Our motivations aren't always blameless. Our plans can be questionable. Our choices are far from ideal. Our actions do not consistently condemn, commend his gospel. But in Christ Jesus, we know God is always kinder than we deserve. In Christ, we have a savior that loves his people despite our failures saves us from the judgment they deserve and he's prepared to say you're going to go to work in my mission you're mine I love you my all-surpassing power is going to come out of you and I'm going to use you for the rest of your life and you'll enjoy glory with me that's good news isn't it let's pray heavenly father thank you so much that we are a people in need of your abounding grace. We're, We're in need of the light of Christ to show our weaknesses, to show our sin, to show where we need to change. But we can't do that without your power, Lord. We can't be forgiven without Christ's finished work. So, Lord, would you keep each one of us dependent on your saving grace, your forgiveness in Christ, Would you keep us alert to where we're just going our own way and where we need to confess sin and come back to you? Keep us in your light, Father. Strengthen us to live for your glory, to know on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that your loving kindness is deeper, greater, inexhaustible. And you see all our faults and still love us and forgive us. Thank you, God, that you are always kinder than we deserve. Amen.